0: Welcome to the show. You are here with your host Auntie Vice and it's good to be back. We are in the middle of uh National King Month thanks to the stockroom.com. And uh so I have on some very prominent kinksters this month. Last week we had Janet Hardy and this week we have the the woman who's probably been more a part of my own sexual journey than any other author i've had on this show i started reading her column when i moved to new york in 98 and it was the one village voice column i read religiously we have tristan Terramino and she has a new book out a part of the heart that can't be eaten welcome to the show thank you
1: i didn't know that i i didn't know all that
0: (laughs) thank you so much (laughs) it's crazy like I have worked with really prominent people in my life. And when it comes to being nervous about meeting someone, you are up there with like very few because you have been, your writing has been so integral to my own work and my own development. It's like, you know, it's amazing. I, I still have. So when opening up came out, like, my ex-wife bought it like the first week it was out in bookstores and like this was a huge part of it so it's so cool to have you here on the show
1: amazing amazing
0: so for those of you who may not be as familiar with Tristan's work she she's a writer a sex educator and one of the best writers out there right now your new book uh, part of the heart can't be eaten is a memoir which is different than your other than some of the other stuff you've done so do you want to talk about the book for a minute sure
1: You know, it is really different in that if you read my Village Voice column, you know that I really explicitly shared my sexual adventures with the world. And I have done that in other books. I've talked about my own relationships and my own sex life. But this book is like a deeper dive. And so there's a lot of stuff in this book that I haven't talked about publicly. I haven't written about before. Plus, there's also... A lot of sex, just in case anyone is like needing that reassurance. (laughs) There's also sex, Um, and it takes place from the time I was born until I'm about 31, so it goes till about 2001. So it covers a really, uh, like a really long part. It's my childhood, my teens, my college years, and then after college, I moved to New York City. Apparently, we moved to New York City right around the same time, and you know got involved in sort of underground queer women's culture and kink um and then the thread throughout the book really is my relationship with my dad who was gay and died of aids in 1995 and you know it's really it's like a unique history of two queer people uh from one family
0: it, it really is and another way it's different is you have an academic press putting this out when you <laughs> Duke University put it out. When you started writing and you started writing about sex, did you ever fathom that academic presses would be clamoring for information like this? No,
1: no. I mean, the fact that that I got to work with Duke is one of the highlights of my entire career. The care that they take with their authors and their books, I, I've never felt so nurtured and respected and, and treated well I mean, that's not shade for other publishers, but (laughs) there it is. Um, And so, you know, there are some university presses which are now venturing out into other kinds of more popular, you know, mass market titles. And, you know, I'm on the docket this, this fall with some really great memoirs, actually, by some incredible people. I never imagined a university press would publish it, but... I have kind of straddled the line between popular writing and academia. You know, I did a book with three professors from UCSB, and I've I've done some academic writing. I've done a lot of talks at colleges and universities. So it it made sense to me. And also, I think that they have a fair amount of, of freedom. You know, there's a lot of pictures in this book, and some of the pictures are a little racy. And they, you know, it all cleared through them. They said, yeah, we'll publish this photo of you topless. Because I think they get a little bit more leeway because no one's kind of like scrutinizing them about their content in the same way they might scrutinize one of the big mainstream publishers.
0: And It's one of the things that that has really changed from the time you started writing about sex, right? When you started writing about sex, there were a few people who had were writing about it, like, your column was coming out when we had Midori on about three months ago, and, you know, her work came out in 2001 with some photos and stuff, but there wasn't this huge influx with sex writers. And now, like, there there's so many you're obviously on top of the sex writing world and uh and know what's going on what's your evaluation of what we where sex writing is going and the whole trend now with so many new voices in there
1: right i mean no matter what we need more dialogue open dialogue and writing about sex you know it's it's it was quite frankly in its infancy when i first started And now we've got, you know, sex columns in college newspapers and tons more books about sex. And, you know, there's a new sex educator born on TikTok every five minutes, I think. Um, And there's some amazing influencers who are talking about sex um, on other social media. So, you know, I think the thing that strikes me is that there are now really, really good writers who take the craft of writing seriously, take the subject of sex seriously. It's not frivolous. It's not a fluff piece. It's not another like listicle. You know, I think of Tina Horn, who's done a bunch of stuff for Rolling Stone. I think of Roe White, who uh, used to work at Auto Straddle. I think of Lux Alptraum who is a freelancer and also wrote a book. So th- there's some people out there who are are just doing really good solid work and really good journalism. And that's really what you want to see. I mean when when I started out it's like I want a world with more sex positivity. And so we are we are creating, we are still forming that world
0: you came into this you you had some interest in law and going to law school and switched over that's another thing you have in common with another number of people who we've had on the show is you move from this academic high-powered area into sex what was it about sex writing that drew you into it and away from you know doing corporate law or anything like that
1: i mean i wouldn't have done corporate law i <laughs> wouldn't at least on public service. But um, but no, it's like, I, I think law school should have a whole sort of niche marketing campaign that's like law school, creating amazing sex writers since 1998, or in my case, I guess since 1993. So the thing about sex to me is, it's just It's a fascinating topic. Now, I say that sitting here as someone in my 50s who you would think, oh, are you pretty kind of jaded by now? Are you pretty over it? (laughs) And I'm not over it. I still have a tremendous amount of curiosity and fascination with all things sexual. Um, When I don't, I'll stop doing it. But for now, I feel like there are endless possibilities. And You know, one of the most exciting things we can do as we connect with other human beings is have these sexual experiences because they're so, so varied. Like they can be quick and they can be hours long and they can be spiritual or they can be nasty and dirty or both or everything, you know, and we can learn something new about our partners or about ourselves. We can transform We can grow up and evolve and explore and, you know, heal through sex. We can do a lot, a lot of things through sex. And so to me, it's a landscape with like endless possibilities.
0: When you started putting out information about your own sex life, was that intimidating or did it just seem real natural to start talking about, hey, this is everything I've been doing? Well, that's a funny story because,
1: you know, I started out writing and getting published erotic fiction, which essentially my erotic fiction was all true stories, very thinly veiled (laughs) um, about stuff that was happening to me and stuff that I experienced and people I had sex with. And so, you know, I felt like, okay, well, this is a sort of a safe way to do it because I'm calling this fiction. So I'm calling this not not a true story, even though much of what I wrote was very true and based on true events. And then at some point, I felt like I I kind of just want to say this like in my own voice. I I, I don't really want to follow the conventions of fiction writing. Fiction writing is very hard to do, and I'd rather just be upfront and say, yeah, this is uh, here's my sex life and. I don't know, you know, one of the things that people have said about the book and about me is just that I somehow managed to escape most of the shame around sexuality that our culture, you know, heaps on us. You know, this is the United States, which is founded in Puritanism Puritanism, um, and also colonialism. And so it's kind of baked into the society all this repression and guilt and negative feelings about sex. And somehow that like flew right by me and escaped me. And so I feel pretty shameless when it comes to talking about sex, including my own sex life.
0: You also, in in this book, you talk a lot about your family, your ancestry, and for other people to have that information out there about them. How was it, in approaching them and saying, hey, I'm going to put this out and these photos out and these letters out. How, did, how was that received amongst the people who show up in your book?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, first, let's just talk about family of origin. The The interesting thing about my family of origin is there, there was actual archival work to be done, right? So my, one of my like great 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 ancestors uh, has his own Wikipedia page, um, and and he's had like scholarly articles written about him because he's known for writing the first book that was banned in the New World. So you get a sense already that like I've got a little rebellion in my blood. But also he was one of the original settlers of uh, of Massachusetts. So uh, he came over real early. And that sort of WASPy, I guess WASPy quality is in some of my bloodline. And then I also was able to find documents like marriage certificates, divorce decrees, Birth certificates, baptismal certificates, a bunch of stuff about my father's side of the family, and also my father's sister. My aunt is still alive, so I can sort of fact check things with her. For the people who are were my lovers, um, I reached out to the ones who I could get in contact with, and I basically said, "Like, hey, here's a heads up. You're in my memoir. Can I use your real first name, or do you want me to use a pseudonym?" can I use this picture of us? Mostly the answer was no. So thank you for the people who said yes and allowed their picture to be in my book. And then do you have any, you know, feelings about, uh, here's the the chapter, it's attached. Do you have any feelings about it that you want to talk about? And universally they said, yeah, that's the way I remember it happened. (laughs) And most of them, you know, are not public figures. Most of them lead quiet lives or are really high-powered executives or have families and kids. And so most of them did not want their name, even their first name in the book, which I have to, you know, it's this delicate balance. Like I want, I'm a really public person. I want to tell my story and I want to be ethical about it. And I want to protect people's privacy.
0: In digging through the family history and learning things about it, did it change the way you viewed family relations or the way you grew up? Oof.
1: Well, you know, reading my dad's memoir all the way through for the first time while I was writing my memoir was, you know, so complicated on so many levels. First, to hear his story in his own voice, he grew up with a mom who was Diagnosed much later in life as bipolar, Um, she was violent. She was physically and verbally abusive to him. He grew up in a really homophobic family where it wasn't like your ordinary homophobia. Like they, they actually like really loved to be homophobic. So it's like he heard homophobic jokes and homophobic stories and all these things like on the regular which as a gay man struggling to figure out his sexuality is pretty devastating. You know, so it's not like just the garden variety homophobia we see in our society or in the media or, you know, it was also his family was super homophobic. And so that part was hard to read and also was quite a contrast to me who came out, you know, almost 20 years after he did and had a much easier time of it was, was surround new gay people my whole life growing up. Uh, new gender queer people was surrounded by queer people at Wesleyan, which is where I went to school. And so, um that that part, that part was just it was like moving and also a little bit bittersweet that he couldn't have had that same experience. Now, my mother is also alive. Um, she's eighty two years old. She's very sharp. And so there were moments when I called up, to fact check some things. I, you know, I, I fact check my memoir, people, just so you know. <laughs> there are ways to fact-check things. Like, there are ways to realize, like, what was the year I met this person? Okay, what was the year they were doing a show in Provincetown? So in talking with my mom, I actually found out, believe it or not, more family secrets. Some of them ended up in the book. Some of them are really too big. And involve other people, and I couldn't put them in the book, although they're quite juicy. So I was sort of finding things out as I was writing this, which is kind of amazing because you think, like, at this point in my life, I I, I kind of know everything, right? Don't I? Don't I know the basics here? Um, but apparently, I didn't. And you know, I think that's generational. I think that, and I think that families keep secrets. That's we know that we know that about families, and sometimes those secrets are unearthed, they're revealed. Sometimes when someone's still alive, other times after they're dead. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not something I want to repeat in my own family, which is comprised mostly of queer folks, and they're all my chosen family.
0: So when we talk about family secrets, we all have those. I grew up in a very waspy family. There are lots, because uh, wasps don't talk. Uh, <laughs> we passive-aggressively mention things. Um, but there's also family histories that get told and twisted. In doing the fact-checking, how much did you find out? I mean, was what was out there pretty accurate or had it been twisted over time, depending on the teller. This is a, this is a great story. Um, well, there's a couple things. One is the
1: stuff in my dad's book was mostly accurate. I fact-checked that with my mom. And so, and also my aunt. So the stuff in my dad's book, and there are pieces of his memoir incorporated into my book. Uh, so you get to read it in his own voice and all of that was accurate. One thing that was like a really funny story that was told to me was that my paternal grandmother's husband, nope, my paternal grandmother's father died fairly young um, on the roof of a Brooklyn building where he owned a restaurant and bar uh, in the bottom floor. And people in my family on that side of my family are like, oh, you know, it was like a gambling thing gone wrong, or he was having an affair with like the female bartender or so I really, really tried to track that down. I really did. And I finally found an article from that year that said, man falls down the stairs of Brooklyn Brownstone and dies. (laughs) And so at first, I mean, I showed it to one of my friends and they were like, see, no, it's all family mythology. He fell down the stairs. People fall down the stairs. And I was like, but did he? I mean, because if it was any one of those other things, like someone pushed him, that wouldn't be in the story, right? That would get covered up. If someone wanted to push him and kill him, they they wouldn't do it and get caught. So it's like there are these mysteries that still linger to me about how... You know, that would be my great-grandfather, how my great-grandfather died um, on my dad's side. And, you know, there are these sort of tales that follow you throughout your family. And and in some ways, it's like they matter. the The story matters as much as like the facts because the story has been fed to you and you have like you have taken that in and thought okay that's that's part of who i am that's part of my history so even if you find out later oh that's not exactly the way it went down you've been told the story so many times that you think this is just the other narrative is just as important
0: and and it really is it does shape the way way we move through the world you've brought up that you had a very different coming out experience than your father Uh, One of the things I've been doing on the show is interviewing older queers because we've seen shit, the younger generation's seen a lot of shit right now, and so many of them feel so vulnerable. So, in your perspective of having been around for a few decades, what's your take on the current political situation with with the, the queer community?
1: Well, I have a lot of takes. Let me, okay, let me start with take number one, which is that I never imagined that the backlash would come this intensely and this swiftly. We've seen in history when people gain representation, when they gain human rights, when they gain visibility, when they gain power, there is a backlash against that outsider, marginalized group. But the backlash going on now for queer people, people with uteruses, and especially transgender people is frightening. It's frightening. I mean, there are people on the right who want to legislate us out of existence and want to write into law that some of us, not all of us, but some of us have no bodily autonomy at all. So that part is scary. That, That part is, is scary. Because I've seen the progress, right? And I didn't even know, like, we were going to get gay marriage when we did. Like, I wouldn't have predicted that it came so soon. So, so the backlash is harsh right now, and you know, we're all kind of trying to have each other's backs. The other thing about the queer community, which I think the internet facilitates, is that I am witness to and have experienced um, a tremendous amount of queer and trans folks eating our own using our time and energy and resources and and sort of like psychic brain space to really trash other people online. And it's so it's really hard to be on the receiving end of that. And it's so hard to watch that happen because we we have real enemies who don't want us to exist and instead of pooling all our resources into fighting those folks we really love to talk shit about each other on on the web <laughs> and on social media so some of this sort of righteous anger that people feel like we all anyone who's marginalized in this country has the right to feel angry and if they're awake they are angry period i mean if you're paying attention to what's going on at all and you're marginalized, it's like, shit is fucked up. But I feel like some of that righteous anger gets directed at people within our own community. And it's not helpful.
0: speaking of righteous anger and directed you you said in another interview you kind of wish your book would get the ire of the right going so it could be banned and then you could sell a ton more <laughs> yeah and, I-, uh, <laughs> I i understand that inclination but you're out you're you're touring uh you have a bunch of dates coming up in the south how how safe do you feel being out in the US and so visibly queer and sex positive
1: yeah that's a great that's a great question too, because you know people are picketing gay gay bookstores now, right? I mean, people are showing up to school board meetings and getting violent. This happened in in my city. This happened in Glendale, in California, where they wanted to acknowledge Pride with like uh, you know hanging a flag, and so everyone had to vote on it. And these anti queer and trans folk people were were getting violent with queer nation LA it was really scary and you know it, it's no wonder queer nation LA has has now been resurrected because we need more direct action politics than we and, and activism than we ever had before i mean i think you know i walk in this world with a lot of privilege i'm white i'm middle class I appear able-bodied, although I am not. I am femme presenting, so I could technically pass as straight if I really just didn't say anything. <laughs> but the minute you I open my mouth, you're gonna, you're gonna know. And so I I afford a level of safety throughout the United States that my brothers and sisters and siblings do not have
0: with that and a lot of this is around bodily autonomy you shot a lot of porn which is and and speaking of people eating their own in the feminist community this has long been debating you were shooting at a time that like Catherine mckinnon and dwarkin and, and all these anti-porn feminists uh, feminists were out it, i mean
1: it, it came a little later it came a little later than the than the dwarkin mckinnon but that had been solidly sort of They had solidly gained a foothold within some sectors of feminism.
0: So there's a debate of can there be feminist porn? So in your mind, what does feminist porn look like? Right. I know. I wish that
1: debate (laughs) wasn't still raging on. Feminist porn now has a history that dates back to the 1980s. And so at some level, like people have to accept it and move on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but to me, feminist porn covers a lot of ground actually. And it's not one thing, just like feminism, isn't one thing, just like you can't define one feminist and say, they're just like another feminist. Um, to me, there's a couple things. One is just that the process of making the porn is fair and ethical. People are getting paid what they want to get paid. They're being treated fairly. They're being respected. Consent is explicit. Labor has always been an issue within feminism, and we can't ignore all the things we're fighting for in labor because we're working with sex workers, right? We can't sort of dismiss that, be, you know, which is just it's horophobic. The other thing is, I think, you know, feminists are ultimately trying to sort of push back, deconstruct, reconstruct, challenge, reimagine sexual imagery that sits outside of, or at the very least critiques, patriarchy, racism, classism, ableism, body size, you know, we're trying to create different kinds of representations to diversify what folks see and not just what folks see but what folks see as who is desirable, who is sexy, what is sexy, what kinds of sex are hot. Um we're trying to really like mix that up with a with a feminist lens. And I also for me as a director, I really had like a collaborative process with my performers. I wasn't really interested in sort of like that top down, you know, it's you and you, you're going to go in the kitchen, you're going to fuck on the the really hard marble countertop. And won't that be comfy for you? Um, And just do what I say and act it out. Um, That's one model. and, And I mean, that's what people do in Hollywood. So again, we shouldn't fault people in porn who do it. But I wanted to really collaborate more with my performers and have them participate as much as they wanted to in their own representation.
0: What was the favorite one you shot? Hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, I can't say that because I love all my children equally. I mean, a, a few things stand out to me. I did three series for when I was at Vivid Entertainment. I did Chemistry, which was like a reality porn documentary style, um, unscripted, and all the chemistries were like they look like super big parties on screen. And that is exactly what they were like. I mean, it was, they were unforgettable experiences. There were amazing people, fantastic chemistry between people, a lot of hanging out, a lot of talking, just a kind of immersive two-day experience with all these performers. I also shot a series called Rough Sex. And Cinnamon Love did this scene, this BDSM scene with all black performers, and she's black. And it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. And she really kind of controlled every piece of that scene. And that's like a favorite. And then I think in the, in the expert guide series, which is a sex ed series, probably the expert guides are pegging. I mean, I had a lot of what I'm just going to call vaguely crossover performers, and that is performers who were known for doing queer porn and indie porn. And I shot them for a very mainstream company, which was Vivid Entertainment. And that pegging video is just, it's super hot.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you bring up pegging because you have a great chapter title, which is Anal Sex Made Me.
1: Thank you for calling that out. Thank you for calling out that title. I'm really proud of that title. And that <laughs> that, that, that it has multiple meanings, and I hope you all like laugh when you see it. Okay, good. Thank you for pointing that out.
0: <laughs> I do. I I love the title. I also your first line of your book is one of the best first lines written. Um, so I will let people read it. But God, it was. So, did you ever think anal sex and pegging would get as common and as big as it is?
1: I mean, I wanted that. I wanted that for people. I wanted that for humanity. I wanted that for lovers everywhere. But the amount of stigma and taboo and shame about anal sex when the first edition of my book came out in 1998, I mean, it was crickets. People were just... They were shocked more than anything else. They were shocked that this book even existed. And now it's like you read cosmo and it's like anal sex yawn how ordinary <laughs> um you know there's articles in major women's and men's magazines in major press that really te- you know talk about anal as if it's like just another thing on the menu and it is just another thing on the menu and i want it to be just another thing on the menu but it didn't used to be And I talked about pegging, many of us talked about pegging before the word pegging existed, before the term was actually like incorporated into the lexicon. We were talking about people, fucking people, mostly cis men in the ass with strap-ons. And so the fact that pegging has even had some sort of mainstream recognition is just wonderful i mean these are the kinds of these are the kinds of progress that i i want to see happening and you know the amount of especially men um of all, cis and trans men who are willing to say i like getting fucked in the ass now versus then it's it's pretty dramatic it's pretty dramatic
0: it really is. And for our listeners who haven't read it, uh, we had Cooper Beckett and Lindsay Miller on when their book, The Pegging Book, came out. And you do a wonderful chapter in there talking about a lot of the cultural ramifications of Pegging. And we'll have the link up to definitely read it. There's a ton of insight that you bring to that. And I appreciate that. Thank you. It's a great book. It's a great book.
1: Yeah, now there's a whole book. There's a whole book on Pegging. I mean, that 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 kind of says it all, right? There's a whole book just on Pegging.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to me that that not just anal sex. I mean, we're talking a very narrow category. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So uh, you have brought up your you're in your fifties. How has sex changed as you've gotten older? Listen, folks, because I'm
1: here to evangelize and proselytize. I was I had surgically induced menopause at the age of forty one. And I'm also on a bunch of antidepressants. I also live with chronic pain. And there was a time in my 40s where I thought maybe this part of my life of being adventurous, of experiencing great deals of ecstasy and connection with partners, like maybe we're winding that down. You know, I did have a good run. (laughs) So I'm not mad about that. But, you know, when I was about 45, I um, started seeing someone new who just set me on fire. Um, And so many things changed with that partner, which made it possible for me to experience sex, not only as good as I had been having before this sort of slump, but better 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 and better because i know my own body uh i know what i want which i've always known those things but this is like you know times 10 and i think about pleasure in really diverse ways it doesn't have to be one thing i'm able to be more vulnerable and connect with someone and so if you told me back then like hey you're going to actually be having the best sex of your life post-menopause at 52 years old, I would say, who are you, lady? (laughs) I would say to the the future me, "Like that's not possible. And yet, here I am, and I can sort of boldly declare that, that, that I'm having sex with deeper physical, emotional, and spiritual connection, more intense sensations, more variety, more fantasy, more orgasms than I've ever had before.
0: You bring up that you are on antidepressants, which are a major killer for most people's sex drives. So what helped you find the combination where you can have a sex drive in these experiences because many people with depression struggle with having any desire at all?
1: Yeah, so listen, I'm still I a, I take a cocktail and I'm still on Prozac, which is an SSRI. And before Prozac I was on Zoloft, which is an SSRI. And that particular class of drugs absolutely affects sexual sensation, affects orgasm, affects libido, um, the ability to have an orgasm. So that's still working against me, like absolutely, but it's keeping me alive. And I am I I make that trade-off willingly, uh, because it's that important to me and, and my mental health. You know, I think if I were gonna offer any advice, I think that one of the things that kind of brought me back to my own sexuality was that once this person kind of sparked it back in me and showed me that like there was still this this amazing sexuality, and it was in me all the time, I began to really cultivate a relationship with myself. And I think sometimes we can, you know, get off the train of masturbation and self-pleasure, especially when we have partner or partners. And I just, you know, my sex drive had increased. And I was like, I kind of want to keep it that way and one thing that happens is like the more you masturbate and the more you have sex the more you want to masturbate and the more you want to have sex that's psychological it's emotional it's also physical it's just your body cuz you keep getting those hormone bumps hormone bumps and then you're like i want some more so developing a sexual relationship with myself like went hand in hand with finding a new lover who could sort of unlock some parts of me that that were quite dormant and now everything like feels very much like it's come <laughs> very full circle I mean not only am I traveling to these cities and seeing people I haven't seen in 15 20 30 years people coming out to my readings and my events some people who are in the book that's been pretty amazing but also you know I've recently met a new person who, Has just entranced me. And I'm totally bathing in new relationship energy. So I fully own that. But I didn't think I could learn anything new in sex. I didn't think I could do things that I've never done before experience pleasure in ways i've never experienced it before and yet that is what's going on that is the reality of my life right now and it is fucking
0: incredible i mean it is That's, wow i am so happy to hear that <laughs> um depression alone and if you don't mind we can talk about depression for a little bit because yeah
1: great no I, absolutely. I, I like
0: yeah um for our regular listeners, you know, I, I live with bipolar type one. And so depression is a huge killer of desire. Um, so beyond a a great drug cocktail, are there any other ways you've you've helped deal with this? Um, because it impacts relationships, it impacts sex. I mean, depression can take over your life.
1: Absolutely. So I I talk a lot about depression. I've been out about my sex life forever. Uh, I have not been this frank or candid about my mental health as I am in this book. And so, of course, a lot of people want to talk about that. Um, and it's a, it's a big part of my life you know, that I deal with on a daily basis, which most of us do when we have mental health issues. So I think that one of the best books like ever written about sexuality, especially for people with vulvas and vaginas and uteruses, is called Come As You Are. It's by Emily Nagoski, and she translates some really cutting-edge research on the sexuality of those folks, some of which identify as women, and translates it for a popular audience. And really sort of blows up our notions of Or mainstream notions of women's sexual desire, arousal patterns, what, you know, what it means to, to experience fluctuations in sex drive. And so with that, I feel like she's really made it a more popular idea that as you age, you have less spontaneous desire. And spontaneous desire to me is like someone walks in the room and you're like, yeah, I wanna fuck. Right. And so, and so then what people are bemoaning, right? They're bemoaning, I don't feel that way about my partner of many, many, many years. Or I just don't get that like teenage feeling of just like feeling it like in my pussy, like when I see someone. Right. And, and so they feel this like terrible loss. Right. And they're, and they're wanting to go back to that. And that's all spontaneous desire. But in essence, lots of people don't have spontaneous desire. We have desire that comes from a number of different sources. So, you know, I am one who sometimes just forgets about sex. I I, I do. Listen, my estrogen is low. (laughs) I'm tired. (laughs) And I have no problem sort of reminding myself, hey, Tristan, you want to have sex? Now, I may be having sex with myself, or I may lean over to a partner and say, hey, do you want to have sex? This is not a romance novel, people. This is not me seducing someone because I say it just like that. (laughs) Or someone says it to me like, hey, remember sex? We had it and then like, should we have it again? And I say, oh, yeah, we probably should. And so I start in, and this is also... Um, a concept from Rosemary and and her like image of female sexuality, which is that I start in a neutral place rather than a super turned on place, right? So I come to it thinking, yeah, let's see how this goes. Start to sort of mess around, start to like feel things. And then my brain goes, oh, I want to have sex. But you see that the arousal preceded the desire. And we've always been taught that desire precedes arousal and spontaneous desire does that, but not all kinds of desire do that. And so sometimes you yeah, have to like remind myself, um, uh, not not right now when I'm bathed in new relationship energy and I just literally want to have sex all the time. And I feel like there's a teenager and they're really horny and they're currently occupying my body. But <laughs> but I have been in a situation where I've just I scheduled sex. I've 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 just sort of reminded myself like, hey, let's have sex again. And I don't ever regret it. I mean, the other thing is like you could start and be like, you know what, I'm not feeling this. Yeah, okay, no. Right? You can start and get into it and then be like, no, abandon. I mean, that's what we should do and we should tell the truth about that and tell our partners and our partners should respect that. So I've never like regretted initiating or starting sex from a neutral place and kind of seeing where it went because usually it can go to a really hot place i just gotta sort of remind myself to go do it
0: and that sentiment has been reiterated by a lot of folks who are you know volvo owners 50 or older um you know i regularly tap my tell my partner you know If you wake up and you're horny in the morning, tap me on the shoulder, I'll take off the CPAP and we can start. Like, it's not real sexy. Right, I mean, but I, I think
1: also we've been, you know, we've been sold the bill of goods on this. What is romantic? What's sexy? What's seduction? You know, to me, clear communication is really sexy. So tap me on the shoulder when you wake up. That's sexy to me because it's like, okay, great. So I may get a tap on the shoulder tomorrow morning. Great. And I think it's important. It's important for us to express our sexual desire in a number of ways, not just this like, hey, baby, kind of like sexy talk and like, turn down the lights and put on the candles and get, you know, it's like, no, I'm in my t-shirt that has like something on the front. And by something, I mean, like, what What is on the front of that shirt? I don't know what that stain is, but something on the front and I'm in my underwear or maybe I'm not in my underwear. And then it's just like, hey, we happen to be lying very close to each other. Let's check each other's bodies out, shall we?
0: And that makes it so much fun. Another thing that doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is the connection between depression, chronic pain and sex. And so you live with all three. So for you, is there a connection between them and how do they interact? Well,
1: yeah, I mean for one thing, the connection between depression and chronic pain, it's it's circular. One feeds into it that feeds back, feedback feedback. Feed, I mean this feedback loop is so intense. Depression exacerbates chronic pain, chronic pain exacerbates depression, and that's one of the ways you can really get stuck in it because it keeps feeding itself. And mostly, but not always, when you're depressed, you have trouble accessing and experiencing pleasure. So of course, you'd have trouble experiencing sexual pleasure, or even wanting sexual pleasure, because the chemicals in your brain are in such a state that You don't even know if you're going to experience pleasure again. I I think that's one of the the most debilitating parts of depression for me is that when I am depressed, I am convinced this is my permanent state and I will never get out of it. This is where I've landed and it's going to be like this till the end of time. And that feels, oh, that feels depressing. First of all, more depressing than I'm already depressed. Um, And it feels hopeless And it does not scream, let me jump out of bed and just like go for a run or go for a jog or or, like just go outside in the sun. So, so yeah, so I think like it's all kind of feeds in on itself and it's like, they're all conspiring together and the conspiracy is for you to not access pleasure and joy. Um, And for you not to be in your body, you know, um, for you, to because sometimes we have to leave our bodies in order to get through the day, right? I mean, the pain is that great that if I, you know, one thing in Buddhism that you do is like when when feelings come up, you become curious about them. So you just, you're curious, like, hmm, what am I feeling? No judgment. What am I feeling? And sometimes you're feeling excruciating pain and you can't lean into it because you have shit to do. And so you're like, I'm just going to shut this off and do the things I have to do. And when you're shut off like that, of course you're not embodied and like ready for action. You're just trying to manage moving your body through the world. So th- so there's a great it's a great conspiracy to work against you. And yet, if you can even remotely bring yourself to have sex with yourself or someone else you get all those happy qu- chemicals you know you get endorphins you get oxytocin you can get some adrenaline it can actually make you feel really good you just have to kind of again remind yourself that it's possible to feel good and that you can get back there
0: and and that can be difficult at best. I just want to acknowledge that to people who are struggling with this. It's
1: yeah, and, and also, you know, we've got we really have to stop framing sex as this one kind of thing like it's you're always naked. There's always penetration. There's always intercourse. There's always orgasm. Like, you know, people there's so many things we can do to our own bodies and the bodies of other people. It's like let your imagination just run wild. And you'll see that actually if you want to have a sexual experience, if you want to experience intimacy, if you want to just get off, which by the way, that's fine too. I don't need you to be in love. You can just fucking want to get off. There are a lot of ways to do that. And we can't box ourselves in about what those ways are.
0: So with all of the you have a ton of stuff out, you have new book, book tour. Most writers need a little bit of of a break before they launch into anything. But what's next for you?
1: Yeah. um, I guess I'm going to have a little bit of break in that I'm on the road for two months. And in that time, I'm very, very busy and so won't be able to really do anything. But here's what's in the pipeline. First of all, I'm writing a book. I'm co-writing a book with my dear friend, therapist, sex educator, Lucy Fielding. Um, I've done a podcast with her on my own podcast. You should go listen to our conversation because that was sort of like the beginning of us even knowing each other. And we're writing a book that is essentially, we don't have a title yet. It's it's a guide to your erotic liberation. So the emphasis here is not on tips and tricks and techniques because like I can give you all the handjob techniques you know you want but if you don't know who you are sexually if you don't know what you want if you haven't worked through some of your own sexual baggage and trauma if if you can't tell a, another person what you want all the tips in the world are not going to get you very far right so we got to start from a different place essentially i'm also writing a second memoir so that memoir will pick up when I'm about 30 years old and will, um, and you'll get my thirties, my forties and the beginning of my fifties. And there's a lot of ground to cover people. I I I feel like I should make like a list of like, spoil alerts. Here's what's coming in the next, (laughs) you know, like here's what's coming in the next memoir. Um, more kinky poly queer sex, um, a dominant submissive relationship that lasts for nearly two decades and then goes off the rails. a mental breakdown. No, wait, two mental breakdowns, menopause, um, you know, the the height of my career. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, and I'm also trying my hand at a novel, which is something I never ever thought I would say. But um. There's a particular story that I want to tell, and there's a particular dynamic, and, and and a particular thing that I want to really like sink my teeth into that I think will work best in fiction. So there's a novel on the horizon. I can't believe
0: it. It's true. It's <laughs> fantastic, and and definitely looking forward to. I love your writing style for lead- readers. Our, our listeners want to um, find you if they want to see you on tour, if they want to read your books, plug all your sites.
1: Okay, great. So my website is TristanTaramino.com. If you click on events, you'll see a Google calendar. And then if you click on the individual um, links, you'll get to my events. So so in general, in October, I'm going to be in the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. That's what That's what you need to know. I am on social media on all platforms except Facebook at Tristan Terramino. I am most active on Instagram. So if you want like breaking news and you want to know what I'm up to and you want to follow my tour and you want to be the first to know anything, Instagram is the way to go. I answer my own DMs. So, you know, take that as you will and uh yeah and i i do i post on my own instagram so um instagram is a is a great way to get me and you can buy my book uh anywhere that bookstores are online in the real world um there's also an audiobook version on audible super proud of how it came out i'm narrating it i had an amazing director like we really created something Fantastic. If you've like, if you've listened to any of my old audiobooks, just just think Tristan 2.0 audiobook. This is like next level. Um, and you can get that on Audible. I think, I think that's it, right? <laughs> I'm looking around like I'm actually at an Airbnb in North Carolina, and I'm looking around like someone's gonna tell me, no, wait, you forgot. And but I'm completely alone here. So
0: no one else is gonna tell me. Listeners will have all of those links and more in the show notes. Read the this is the one of the best. I've read a ton of memoir this year. This is definitely one of the top ones. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for all of your work. You've been so transformative for me. And good luck with the tour.
1: Thanks for having me. I just I really, really appreciate appreciate these conversations. I don't take them for granted. Um, you know many of us are making really important media and our voices need to be out there. And I'm so glad your voice
0: is out there. Thank you. Thank you. And now a moment of gratitude.
1: I I mean, I'm grateful for, for so many things. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for, the many treatments and modalities I've used to manage my depression that have kept me alive. I'm grateful for the people that I have in my life right now and how they love me and hold me and see me and support me and encourage me to be like the best version of me. (sighs) Oh, I am grateful to have really shitty, but still nonetheless their health insurance. Really, really bad health insurance. But I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky and grateful to have that. I'm I'm grateful to have the friends that I do, some of whom I've known. You know, I just saw my best friend from junior high and high school. What an amazing reconnection we had. And then people I met last year. Who I'm becoming close to, and I'm I'm just my my friendships are really really important to me, and I feel so lucky to have all these people in my life um, who who show up for me and who I show up for, and I mean, there's just a lot of love right now in my life, and. Oh, you know, when you get cynical and you get jaded and your body gets old and you think, wow, are we winding this down, Tristan? This life? Anyway, um, life surprises you and throws you a few curveballs and says, actually, it's only just begun.
0: at FatChicksOnTop.com.